I thought being fine meant going back to work, moving on, and just getting on with my life. When really what I needed to do to be fine in that moment was take care of myself more, you know, tend to that grief, experience the fullness of the loss. But I I didn't I didn't feel comfortable doing that. I didn't think I could afford to do that, both in terms of my professional career and just practically financially. And so I went back to work. If you don't take the time to grieve, your body will make the time for you. The more you try to control or suppress your grief, the more it ends up controlling you. And when you stifle or suppress your grief, it can come at a great cost. Because grief is an emotion that does not respond well to intellectual strategies or hacks. It has a job to do, and it will take you out if you don't listen to it. I also know there are not many spaces that encourage you to take the time to tend to the fullness of your grief. There's work deadlines that are looming, bills that need to be paid, family care that's all too present, and the systems in place and culture's approach to grief and loss, at least here in the States, is making us sick as we're further perpetuating a practice or even a fundamental need to push through and go about business as usual in ways that are unsustainable. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. If you can grieve well, you will lead well. And I say this because having a respect for grief means respecting the work it does in all of us. Grief disorients and it also reorients. Grief changes and grief transforms. Grief is not convenient and nor will it feel efficient or tidy as much as efficiency and tidy are desired. But leading people means leading through the complex and nuanced human experience. And when we neglect to approach our grief and the grief of others with the reverence it deserves, we may unintentionally become complicit in toxic narratives around grief while doing harm to ourselves and others. There is so much going on in the world right now in our country and in our communities. The amount of loss and devastation we continue to witness from war to white supremacy and gun violence to reaching a devastating and heartbreaking milestone of one million lives lost to COVID, the collective grief piles on personal grief. It understandably feels too much. So when our schools and our businesses and even places of worship don't know how to properly give permission to really grieve, we breathe in the message that it's just not okay to not be okay. And, and frankly, for many to really grieve and heal is simply not in the budget. Robust policies and practices around bereavement would push back on the explicit and implicit messages to, quote, get over it and, quote, move on. Now, grief is exhausting for sure, but the work that goes into managing it instead of working through it is even more taxing. When grief is not tended to, 
our bodies will end up being the truth tellers in ways of anxiety, insomnia, panic attacks, brain fog, and so much more just to get us to pay attention to our grief and the message it has for us. Now, my guest today addresses powerfully what it looks like to normalize grief and what happens when we try to bypass it. Marissa Renee Lee is a writer, speaker, entrepreneur, and grief advocate. She's the author of the book, Grief is Love. She's the founder of the social impact consultancy, Beacon Advisors, along with the co-founder of the digital platform, Supportal, which offers resources to those going through hardship and loss. And she's also the founder of The Pink Agenda, a national organization dedicated to raising money for breast cancer care, research, and awareness. Now pay attention to how Marissa tried to prepare for grief and what she discovered when grief arrived in her life. Listen for the impact unattended to grief had on Marissa's body, her work, and her relationships. And notice when Marissa started to own her capacity as she was working through grief and what happened when she spoke her truth and started to own her grief at work and in her personal life. Now, please welcome Marissa Renee Lee to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Marissa, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So we were geeking out before we started recording. <laughs> I, I'm showing I'm showing you right now. If you're listening, you can't see it, but I've got Marissa's book with my post-it notes throughout. And we're going to, I don't know if we, we could be talking for hours to cover the juiciness in this book, but I first, I just want to say congratulations on Thank this you. book. Grief is love. It, it, it will be sent to a lot of people. I know Aww. it is. Um, there's so much in it that cuts through a lot of the things that I was taught about grief in my life, but also in my clinical training. Right. This, oh my God. And I, and I loved how you, you're like, this isn't a how to, this is a compass. And I'm like, yes, thank you. In the book, you cover a lot about grief, detailing your own grief story, right? So I want to go back to early 2008 and okay. take you back to your childhood home where you're caring for your mom who had stage four breast cancer and also multiple sclerosis. And just want you to share what was going through your head when grief arrived for oh. you, when your mom collapsed in your arms. At that moment, when she collapsed in my arms, I just, I knew it was over. And I thought that her death was something that I could prepare for. You know, I'm, I'm a list maker. I'm a spreadsheet person. I'm a research it. We can find the answer to anything that we need or trying to figure out type mentality. You know, I had read Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's On Death and Dying like six months before she died. I knew what she wanted to have done with every piece of jewelry. I knew that she wanted, if possible, to like donate her body to science, given all of these health challenges that she had. You know, I had the playbook. You know, I was ready, but there is no mm. such thing. And in that moment, you know, we shared a joke. Like my mom literally died laughing. We shared a joke. She passes out and I'm like trying to hold her up. She then starts having a seizure, which like that was probably honestly like the most traumatizing part in a lot of ways. And I couldn't hold her up anymore. I'd lost so much weight from, you know, the grief that I didn't even know I was experiencing in the lead up to her death. 
Um, and so I, I laid her body on the floor and when I laid her on the floor and saw what she looked like there, I screamed because I just, I knew that this was it. And what I didn't know in that moment was that, you know, like when I laid her on the floor and I screamed, the person who I was ceased to exist. You know, there was now a entirely new identity that I had to pick up and figure out how to carry forward and how to live, you know, without my mom. You know, I was now a motherless daughter, as some people like to say, and mm. it was really hard. I don't know, you know, it was, it was, it was devastating. I didn't, I didn't know that something that was emotional could cause so much physical pain too. Exactly. There, there's a couple moments in your book that you talked about and you mentioned it right now to the lead up. There wasn't, there isn't enough, like, you know, Kubler-Ross, there's the five stages. And you, you mentioned that that's written for people who are dying themselves. Exactly. I was going to say, I want to make sure we unpack the five stages for people because I feel like it's often, and you know, in your work, it's often used to create more self-judgment and shame because when we hear stages, you know, we're both parents. My baby's almost eight months old. I think about developmental milestones. You know, the things that we're watching for. He started rolling over in the last week. He's got his two top teeth coming in. You know, these things that you look for that happen in a sequential order. And that's not even what oh, such you BS. Yeah, it's just, yeah. it's so unfortunate. It's literally the worst game of telephone. And so many people I talk with about anticipatory grief, or ambiguous grief, and the losses that happen when someone is still living. Oh, yeah. But there was also this moment where you just, and you mentioned too, when you screamed when she collapsed. And that's that hit me because I think of some of the most devastating losses I've had. And that's exactly what I did. I had this scream that came from somewhere I did not know. And then, you know, and it was this, cause it was this physical pain and that yeah. scream was the only thing that could somewhat regulate and release and ground a little bit, orient a little bit. Yep. There was nothing else. So I just, I read that night. It was like a drop the book moment. <laughs> and yeah. I just felt that in my body. Cause for me, that scream, even now, like it feels like, it almost feels like I was having a sort of out of body experience, you know, like mm -hmm. I can, I can very clearly, very quickly go back to that exact moment and see myself there. And God, it was, it, yeah, I just, I didn't, I didn't have words. I don't even know. I don't even know where that sound and that, you know, sort of mm -hmm. raw emotion came from, but like it came up and out. And as soon as it happened, I just, I just knew. And that was it. She, she actually wasn't dead in that moment, but she died like two hours later. I'm just feeling that, just feeling that. And an, I'm another image is coming back to me from your mom's funeral. And I was laugh crying reading this because <laughs> you're at the funeral and all that you had done that led up to it. And then there's this person singing a song that was very dear to your mom and it wasn't landing and you just started cracking up and it's that contagious laugh like you're like when you're not supposed to be oh, laughing laughing and it just 
And I started like I'm reading this and I started laughing and then started crying. And my, my family is like, what is going on? Because <laughs> I, I was feeling that with you. But there's there's like that scream. But there's also that laugh. Like it's like this laughter that's not about funny. It's like yeah. it's another another way another of release. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And uh, for context for folks, you know, we grew up. I was raised in the black church, um, but by the time my mom passed away, the church that we were attending was predominantly white. And the pastor who was helping with, you know, all of the funeral arrangements, wonderful man, confirmed that he had this fantastic black woman gospel singer to sing His Eyes on the Sparrow, you know, one of my mom's favorites. And this woman got up and she, I, I truly cannot describe how bad she was. And, you know, the family, we're all sitting in the front row and it's my dad, my godparents, my grandparents, me, my sister, my cousin, and me, my sister, my cousin, we looked at each other like, is this really happening? And then once one of us started laughing, the others just followed suit. And, you know, my grandmother's there trying to get us to stop being rude because it was incredibly rude to be clear. And she was laughing too. You know, like it was just, it was such a ridiculous moment and such a distinct memory for our family you know we still talk about it all the time when my sister read it in the book she was so happy that it made it into the book because it was one of her favorite memories if you can have a favorite memory from the week your mom dies it's, it's that there's like a, a bonding acre it's yeah the, it's, it's the ridiculousness of grief too it's like yeah. it's ridiculous and it's disorienting, disorienting but there's some kind of yes. common humanity where there has to be like you can breathe a little bit yeah and and it's an it's so i just wanted to make sure i mentioned that <laughs> because it, i think there's so many of us that can relate to that in an article that you wrote for the atlantic that after the acute stage of grief and loss and i love this grief will arrive like a paper cut not debilitating but just sharp enough to force you to acknowledge all you have lost i was like oof so let that breathe for a moment and and I just want you to share how has grief continued to show up in your life since your mom's loss? Yeah, I mean, it's it is in these little things in the details. You know, I grew up outside of New York City and I'm here today getting ready for an event um, we're doing with Brooke Shields this evening. And it's my first time bringing my son to New York City, you know, the city that I grew up around, the city that I still believe, and I will fight anyone on this, is the best city in the world. And it feels wonderful, but it's 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 like a nostalgia colored by grief. Like, I know my mom is so happy seeing us here. You know, like, I believe she's with us all the time, but I wish, obviously, she was actually with us. And then last week, you know, the, the book came out and... It, books come out on Tuesdays. So on Monday, you know, it's it's pub week, but not quite pub week. And I woke up and I just felt sad, you know, not overwhelmingly so, not a cry yourself to sleep type thing, but just, uh, wow, like this is here. This is a really big milestone. This is a really big moment for me and for my family. And it is so much about my mom, but it's not it's not something that I can sh share with her in the way that I would like. And you just, you feel it. Um, or sometimes my husband will say something or, you know, Bennett, uh, my son will do something. And, and I just, I see my mom in these moments and, and it can be like just, just a sharp sadness. 
that usually comes and goes quickly for me, but it's definitely there. And there's been other experiences with grief and loss that cut deeper than a paper cut since your mom's death too, that you touched on in your books. Oh, yes. In 2019, my husband and I lost a much wanted pregnancy at the end of, you know, a multiple year, multiple thousands of dollars journey egg donors, IVF, you know, all the things. And when I found myself on that day in August, curled up on the floor of our bathroom, you know, realizing that this dream was not about to come true. And also being very physically sick from the pregnancy, you know, sicker than I'd ever been. All I wanted was my mom. And I didn't know what to do with that. You know, if you had asked me before that day in August, if I had, you know, quote, moved on from having lost my mother, I would have told you, yeah, I think so. You know, like I'm, I'm in pretty good shape. And when that happened, it just all came flooding back. Plus the piece around like grieving the pregnancy loss, you know, so I found myself in this place where I was grieving for a future that I had hoped for and was no longer about to realize I was grieving for this woman who had raised me and cared for me and supported me, who was not there to help me navigate all of this. Fast forward a couple months, and we found ourselves in the midst of global pandemic. And so I was suddenly stuck with all of these feelings I was sorting through and, you know, still had no plan for how we were actually going to become parents in this world full of grief with no distractions, you know, not even the healthy ones, like an in-person therapy visit Mm -hmm. or a trip to church. And I was left to just figure it out on my own. And I ended up kind of writing my way through it. And that led to an article in Glamour that went viral about how you don't get over these foundational losses. When you lose someone you love, who is one of your people, you know, your child, your spouse, your best friend, your parent, you don't get over that. You know, you shared unconditional love with this other human being. And I honestly don't even know what getting over it would look like. You know what I mean? And the thing that I'm so grateful for through this book process is that I was able to work with a Harvard uh, researcher and like bereavement professor who also went through pregnancy loss and parental loss. So it was it was all very resonant for her, but she was able to bring the research and the data around grief and loss into this book. So it's not just my experience. And I ultimately learned through her that, you know, I was right. You know, there is a theory called the continuing bonds theory that is, you see, you know, obviously, that is considered to be one of the healthiest ways of dealing with grief and loss. And it's all about identifying ways to continue your bond with your person who's no longer here in a manner that's healthy and, you know, positive and hopeful. You know, my son is going to know about his grandmother. There is no doubt in my mind that he is going to, he's going to feel like he has a relationship with this person who is not here, who he will never meet. Um, And that is how I choose to do grief. And that is the framework that this whole book is based around. 
And it's one of the healthiest conversations and books, uh, discourse on grief that I've seen. Oh, thank you so much. Well, because of what you talk about, like this isn't getting it over. I even had mentors even before my clinical training, like you've got one year. And then if you're not over it, then you need to get help. Like you're broken. And I just call BS to that. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean, and you identify what that means. I mean, we're, we're, we'll get into that, but I, I want, you talked about moving on and this really landed with me and I know will land with a lot of people. You return to work. Oh yeah. You're very high intensity work. Love it. Two weeks. I love being after productive. Your mom. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's toxic <laughs> productivity, right? Uh, but yeah. two weeks after your mom died, cause you, and you were determined to have the appearance of someone who moved on. Yeah. And I'm curious, what were you afraid of happening if you were not seen as if you had moved on? In the months leading up to my mom's death, you know, once we had decided that she was no longer going to undergo active treatment, I decided, you know, I wanted to do everything I could to make her end of life as positive and pleasant as possible. And I also felt it was important for me to give her permission to go. You know, like she was the kind of person who was just such a caretaker of others. You know, I wanted to make sure that she knew that I was going to be okay when she was no longer here. And so I wrote her a letter probably the month that she passed away. And in the letter, I promised her that I would be just fine. And I think that the mistake Mm -hmm. that I made was like, confusing what it means to be fine in the absence of someone you love. You know, I thought being fine meant going back to work, moving on, and just getting on with my life. When really what I needed to do to be fine in that moment was take care of myself more, you know, tend to that grief, experience the fullness of the loss. But I I didn't I didn't feel comfortable doing that. I didn't think I could afford to do that, both in terms of my professional career and just practically financially. And so I went back to work and this didn't end up making it into the book, but at some point I'll probably write a piece about it. Every day I would, you know, get up, get dressed, be miserable, exhausted, you know, heavy, grieving, struggling. But I I could, I could get up, I could get out of the house and then when I would go to get off the subway to actually go to work, that's when it would hit. And I would have these horrible panic attacks in the basement of the investment bank where I worked pretty much every day for months. And one of my close friends who thankfully worked there, she would come down every morning with a latte, a cookie, and a Xanax from like my drawer at my desk. And like I would have the coffee with her, eat, you know, the little pastry, take the Xanax and go to work as though that was a normal way to start your day. Ooh. Yeah. So what, what <laughs> toll did this initial approach to your grief have on you and your well-being? And, and what was the turning point for you when you realized a latte, a cookie and Xanax isn't the way to kick off a day for the long term? Yeah. Um, So a turning point for me happened when I saw an acupuncturist in New York and she, you know, had a lot of thoughts about 
benzos and, you know, all the meds that I was taking because I was on Xanax and I was also on a really strong medication for sleep. Neither were really working effectively. I do not think I was being medicated effectively. And and I want to make that clear to people because I do really believe that there is an important role that medication can play when you are living with loss and trying to figure out how to navigate the worst of your grief. Um, I just think in my case, this was also 14 years ago, but I I don't think it was all well-managed. So I just want to put that out there. Um, But she, you know, she shared some concerns that she had for me. And so I then decided that I wanted to stop taking these meds. And I did that cold turkey, which I'll let you weigh in as a therapist is absolutely not the way to go. It, It was not healthy. It was not the right decision. But ultimately, it led to a better, healthier place for me. So that, that you know, the conversations that I had with her and the way that I felt that she really cared for me and cared about me helped me kind of see things in a different way. Um, I just wish I had been more supported by others so I would have known kind of how to navigate that period of time better, honestly. When you say, I wish I was supported more by others, who are the others? I wish that I had a a therapist who was more involved in me, like my holistic health, you know, managing the medication. Um, Because I think I did need it. I think I maybe could have also benefited from an antidepressant. Um, But... I, I didn't, I didn't have that. And, you know, I was, I was young, so I, I didn't know how to navigate a lot of the sort of intricacies of our mental health system. Now you bring up a good point because, and, and I, because of what my areas of specialty are clinically, I've always worked on treatment teams with, you know, a primary care physician, psychiatrist, often a dietitian, and then other auxiliary treatment. And it's really important that we have a team and a holistic approach and we talk to each other on that. And, and yes, cold Turkey, I I appreciate, I mean, from what I read of your book and got a sense from you, that's, that was how you're going to roll. That was, that was you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We should always, you know, public service announcement. We should always do that under the supervision of a medical doctor is the ideal way. Yes. Um, And I also have a lot of compassion for why you did what you did. Though I'm not encouraging it for anyone yeah, listening. No, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> absolutely not. So oh. I, I'm wondering, as leaders, what can we do to foster spaces that have room for grief and the other messy human emotions? That's a really great question and an important one, because as you and I both know, we're at a point where nearly one million Americans have been lost solely to the COVID-19 pandemic. There are millions of Americans returning to office spaces, carrying the heaviness of their grief. And I think a big part of it is normalizing grief and, and leaders who are able to share that, you know, grief is real, that that they know that it's happening to a number of their employees and colleagues. And that they are committed to providing, you know, support services and resources to people who are dealing with grief and loss. Like that makes a big difference. You know, if if people see from 
leaders and managers and executives that it is okay to talk about grief, to acknowledge grief, to share that you are experiencing grief, they will be more likely to do it, which I would hope would help facilitate whatever they need to heal. You know, so I, I think a big first step is just making it known that this is this is a part of life and that, you know, we know that this is something that you're going through, you know, ha- having the conversations and elevating it as something that we all have to deal with, especially right now, but always in life, I think is really important. And then I would love to see more companies offer, you know, a more comprehensive bereavement leave. You know, grief isn't just about those first two weeks after you lose someone, you know, letting someone Mm -hmm. take a few days off later in the year to perhaps commemorate either the anniversary of the loss or their loved one's birthday or something, you know, having more flexibility around what bereavement leave looks like, around what bereavement support looks like. You know, lots of companies have employee resource groups. Should we be thinking about companies starting employee resource groups for people who are grieving in this moment? I I think that I've been digging into some research on kind of peer support and peer mentorship. And there's some really juicy stuff because of accessibility, because of how full everyone's lives are. And I think that's powerful. But here's here's the catch, though, Marissa, and I'm saying this, what you know, is that if leaders are going to talk about grief and cultivate spaces that grief can be discussed, that means that leaders need to be able to sit with their own grief stories. Yeah. So hard. they can sit with others. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely right. And And grief, to me, I talk about grief as being probably one of the most painful emotions to feel. Yeah. Because it is a full body yes. emotion. It is a physical pain, but it also is one of the most clarifying oh, emotions. Oh, God, yes. I talk about being like hydrogen peroxide, like it stings like a mofo, Ooh. but it cleans and cleanses at the same time. And you're like, you know, trying not to cuss, or maybe oh you are just gosh, cussing. I love that analogy. Right? But you know it's cleaning and cleansing. It's got to do its job. And if you don't let it do its job, you get infected. Yeah. Wow. I love and, that. You need to put that out into the world bigger. That's, that, that is beautiful. <laughs> but it's, it, I mean, I think it's just from a, I had to get some language around what was happening for me when grief hit me and I did not have permission. Yeah. And you write about this in your book, you have a whole chapter about permission and that if we don't give ourselves or give others, and I feel like just the permission to grieve, yeah. permission to not be productive. And, and you touch on COVID, which I, I want to dive a little deeper into that. It is we want to just kind of get back. We think I just got to get back, you know, that move, I got to move on, or I got to this whole get back to normal stuff, which I I think we roll our eyes at, but there still is this pull. We roll our eyes and then we're like, yes, but I just want to get back. And then people, they're saying it, but you can't ever get back after grief. There's no getting back. No, no. Yes. There's no, what I kept trying to do. And I think this is why, I think this is a big part of why I struggled so much after losing my mom. I kept trying to go back to myself. You know, like I, I just, I just wanted to feel better. I just wanted to feel normal. I just wanted to feel like Marissa. And I didn't understand uh. that Marissa was different, that Marissa had been transformed, that Marissa is now, you know, a 25 year old trying to navigate Wall Street as a black woman who just lost her mom. Like that's, that's just a different person. And I, and if someone had 
told me, like, you are not the same. Like when your mom died, the person who you were at that time died. And now you have to figure out what it looks like to build a full life without her. I think that would have been really helpful. Permission to, it's it's the both and. You yeah. talked about someone who talks about the and-ness. And I liked that. Um, I, I don't know if you have the book nearby. I um, don't actually. I gave away okay. all my copies to other people. I love that. But I, I, I want to read this because we're touched, there's something you, you touched on vulnerability. And as someone mm-hmm. who's worked with Brene Brown and her team for a decade now as a facilitator, vulnerability is at the crux of Brene's research. And people keep talking about it and getting it wrong. And you wrote about this in a way that I think is really important for listeners. And you wrote on, at least in the book I have, I think it's a galley yes. on page 28. It says, as I've considered vulnerability in the context of grief, I've come to realize that vulnerability requires a sense of safety that is not equally distributed in our society. And this was, this was big. Some people are too busy to be vulnerable. Some of us are too female, too poor, too gay, or too black for vulnerability. There's no space in our lives for it. Vulnerability is something we were not taught, never learned, or had to unlearn given life's challenging circumstances. How do you begin to access the vulnerability that grief requires in the absence of safety and security? If day-to-day living often feels like a battle, grieving seems like a luxury. Yeah, I actually, I, I wrote this whole sort of thesis on vulnerability and safety during the early days of book writing. And, you know, I wasn't even sure if this was going to make it into the book. It was more about the discomfort that I personally felt after we lost our pregnancy. And, you know, I was very open about it, sharing on social media, writing articles, you know, all the things. And I got a lot of credit for being, quote, being vulnerable. And I felt really sort of icky that people were praising me for my vulnerability. And, and, you know, I kind of had to go back and unpack it a little bit. And I realized it's because, you know, I am privileged or, you know, as privileged as one can be as a black woman in America. I'm as safe as one can be as a black woman in America. I have all of the degrees. I have the solid gold resume. I have the bank account. I even have a white husband. Like, I'm good. So I can share in that way because people generally receive it well. But what does vulnerability look like if you are the 16-year-old, single mother, Black, you know, living in a community that has been completely, like, disenfranchised, underinvested in for decades? Like, you are already vulnerable based on the circumstances of your life, so you don't have room for this emotional vulnerability that I feel so comfortable expressing. And I've been thinking about it more and more lately as we watch both things happen in this country, like, you know, the horrendous anti-gay legislation that is we're seeing, you know, in Florida and in Texas. You know, the parents of those children, they don't have time to be vulnerable because they're worried about keeping their kids safe. I thought about it when we saw those images that came out of Ukraine of you know, the mothers writing contact information in permanent marker on their children's bodies in case they die or are separated as they try and flee this period of war. 
So when we think about vulnerability, when we praise people for being vulnerable, I just think it's really important to examine the broader context. Like, why are they able to be vulnerable and maybe someone else isn't? I really appreciate, really appreciate that nuance. And it can people continue to get that concept wrong because if you're like, yeah, I was so vulnerable and you're smiling, that wasn't vulnerability. Well, yes, yes, I love that. You, you are crawling, you're curling up, you're agitated, but you, you were true, you showed up writing, working through these things because you were being true to what mattered most to you, your values. But, you know, from the outside, it made other people feel sometimes it's 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 so uncomfortable and it is not a fleeting thing. It is is it is a full body situation, but there's also there's a lot of nuance to it. So I, I appreciate that. And, and just building on that, too, you talked about that we're at the recording of this conversation. Mm-hmm. We're almost at the one million mark for lives lost to covid and 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 I'm wondering if you could walk me through how grief and loss and trying to heal from them how it teases out the many inequities in our culture, especially around COVID. So you touched yeah. on that a little bit, but how, how have you seen COVID and the grief and loss piece kind of bring to light even more of kind of the privilege and the haves and have nots? Yeah. I mean, you know, summer of 2020, as folks were taking to the streets to protest the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and just, you know, sort of general racial injustice in America, you also saw Black people, poor people, other people of color dying from COVID at disproportionate rates. So it's it's almost like if you are if you are poor and also happen to be a person of color in this country, every experience is made harder because of the ways in which our country is rooted in white supremacy and capitalism. You know, like if you are a black or brown person who doesn't have a lot of financial resources, the odds that you either lost a close family member or multiple close family members during the pandemic is incredibly, incredibly high. And generally, black death is more pervasive in this country. Black children are three times as likely as white children to lose mothers. Black people, by the time they are 30, are three times as likely as white people to have lost multiple close family members. And that's just, that's just normal life in America. That's not, that's nothing to do with the pandemic. That's just how the country is. And COVID brought it up to light for a minute for those who chose to look at it. Yeah. And you touched on this too, that you'd like to see businesses offer more expansive bereavement Uh, policies, but what else would you recommend? Yes, I think so. In this country, because of our commitment to capitalism, I think we don't we don't value care because care isn't something that you can monetize like we don't. and, And we've seen it a lot around, you know, women in the workforce, especially in the midst of the pandemic, you know, all of these women having to flee the workforce because you know, suddenly they were left with no options for childcare. And, you know, I think when it comes to grief policy, I think we need better mental health support and resources in this country, both public and private. You know, we need for people to be able to more easily access therapy and counseling and support groups and to be really practically supported in doing so. So that means, 
we need more childcare. You know, we need more paid family leave. We need better policies around, you know, how therapists are even, you know, reimbursed for the work that they do. I, I know from conversations with a friend who's a therapist, yeah, I see you. <laughs> um, and even casual conversations with my own therapist, you know, some of the frustrations and inequities that exist in that system as well. Um, so there is there is a lot that needs to change, but I think it starts by having conversations like this one that elevate grief and the need to to talk about it, to think about it, to think about it differently, to figure out how to deal with it out in the world. Because when you're trying to change policy, like you have to start by raising awareness. And so, you know, as a former policymaker, as someone who continues in my other job to advise various policymakers, you know, I hope that this book can both help people heal from their losses and navigate grief in their own personal lives, but can also be a part of elevating the conversation around grief and loss so that we have better policies and people are better supported as they're moving through it. Because, I mean, what would you say are the stakes for leaders right now who are hearing you talk reading your book, hearing these conversations to step up and honor the collective traumas and losses that we continue to move through as we navigate the subsequent physical and emotional toll this has had on all of us. What do you see as the stakes right now for the leaders I think, that are listening? I think the stakes are high. And as someone who has previously and is currently working on like a talent management and leadership development project for a client and doing research around all of the ways that talent management strategies have shifted as a result of the pandemic and what people now expect and look for from employers, especially top talent. If you are not taking care of your employees in a holistic manner, you're going to lose them, period. So the stakes are very high. you know. And, and, and when you think about what it would cost leaders of organizations, you know, CEOs, et cetera, to step up right now, the cost of it is not high, but the potential no. downside is incredibly high. And so yes. I think I think it's a, I think it's a business imperative. Like beyond the fact yes. that I believe that you know helping people move through grief and honor their losses, that we all have a moral responsibility to do that. There is also a real business imperative and business responsibility here. It does connect to your bottom line when people are cared for and supported in a healthy way in the workplace, they perform better. When employees perform better, your bottom line business results are better. And who doesn't want that? And we don't have to leave our morals out when we're talking about business. Exactly. Absolutely we don't not. Have, it doesn't have to be morals not. and business. We can, this, this is, I think this is the rub right now. And this is scary for a lot of leaders that are still stuck in old ways of thinking, not just about the bottom line, but about like this the, the getting talent in. And it's so easy to poo-poo. Yeah. Oh, they're soft. So thank you so much for naming that. Um, I think I want to have you back to talk more about <laughs> this because my brain is going. But I want to circle back to what you write a lot about too, that you name the pain of loss never fully subsides. And, and I think this is so imperative that this is like the normal, like if we could just like the sky is blue and the pain of loss never fully subsides. Yeah. Like it just is, you're not flawed or broken wrong or with you. weak. It is part of daring to love and being just being human. Yes. And 
And I want to hear from your words how, because I know for me how it was, but how is this different from the conventional wisdom about grief and loss that you were taught? The conventional wisdom is that, you know, you go through these five stages, you're really sad for two weeks, you have a year to get over it, and then you move on and it's done. And you essentially forget about it. And that's just not true. And it truly is not possible. When you share these unconditional love bonds with someone else, it leaves an imprint on your brain. Like I am who I am because my mother was who she was and we had the relationship that we had while she was here alive. Like there is no getting away from that. And so instead, Mm -hmm. you know, I am telling people, first of all, it's okay to be sad. Second of all, you should do whatever feels right to you when it comes to healing and also when it comes to honoring your losses. You know, what does it look like for you to bring this person to life for people who've never met them? There can be mm-hmm. joy in that. And it, like it comes back to permission is yeah. we've got to cultivate spaces where it's going to, it's okay, but we have a discomfort problem in yeah. our country here. We yeah. have a big discomfort problem. And the reason why is because we're holding so much in and we bob and weave and try and avoid feeling all that we're holding, all the burdens that we're carrying. And, you know, so this, this is there, there was a lot of badass things in this book, but there's this moment yeah. you were writing about, and I was thinking, would I have done oh, this? Oh gosh, now I'm like, I know what now? is she going to say? <laughs> okay. So you, this is when you were working in the white house and there was like the big oh, rollout yeah. for the brothers oh, yeah. keeper initiative. Oh, yeah. And you knew it was going to be around your mom's birthday and her death day. And you were thinking, okay, I hope it's not, doesn't fall in there. And it was initially scheduled and you're like, whew, it's not on those days. Good. I can be there. And then a snowstorm hit and you turned to a colleague and said, if it's on February 28th, you can't be there. I'm not there. I'm not doing it. And, and I, I, and that was another put the book down moment. I was like, cause you're in the white house, Barack Obama's going to be there. I mean, magic Johnson's going to be there. Colin Powell's going to be there. I mean, this is the show. And having lived in DC, that you don't have that choice. It's like you just do. Yeah. That's kind of like the culture. So I, my twenty-something self was like, huh. That's <laughs> you know, I, I was like, that's a choice. Yeah. And you told your colleagues, you spoke it, and and you you asked for help, and and your and your colleagues were supportive, even though you noted they didn't have the power maybe to make it no. happen, and it ended up not happening. <laughs> we got lucky. <laughs> but I I think though there's something. Like even in the White House, you spoke that. But I, I I think there's something to be said where you stepped up and named that. And if more people asked for help and gave themselves the permission or were in spaces they knew, like for you, you're like, I won't be here. I'll be as like, if I show up, I'll be a shell. Yeah, I, I knew I couldn't do, do it. What I need to do. I knew I couldn't do it. Yeah. And you named it where I'm like, I don't know if I would have. I would have pushed through. And, and so that that just really is, and I think this is what so many of us do because you're like, it's the White House, it's this or it, whatever, it's my paycheck, you know, yeah. I, I've got to. And you were you were support. You talked about having this huge like, f- you know, fanfare of this incredible White House event, and then the next day, you know, cheese its and movies on, on your couch, you know, snot flying flying everywhere. And I'm like, that's human yes. right there. Yes. But I, I just, I just wanted to draw attention to that because I have been thinking about it. I'm like, I'm like, I would encourage other people to do what you did, but would I have done that in that situation? And I just thought, you know, you were really true. You were true to your grief story. I just, 
I, I knew that that day, because the event and the initiative were so near and dear to the president's heart, you know, it was something that he gave a speech after Trayvon Martin was killed. Actually, it was after the George Zimmerman verdict came out. Um, mm-hmm. And he spoke in the White House uh, press briefing room. And I remember when he gave the speech and he said, you know, we're going to do something. And we all kind of looked at each other like, oh, we are. Does anybody know what he's talking about? And nobody knew what he was talking about because he was just speaking from his heart. So like the event was something that he was very emotionally connected to. High profile folks from, you know, business, media, entertainment, sports, government, et cetera. And I had a very big like staff role to play. And those days, you know, they are nonstop, high pressure, you know, lots of details, lots of moving parts and pieces. And there was just no way that I could do that on the anniversary of my mom's death. At that point, at that point, I think she'd been gone for four or five years, maybe. And I, I just, I knew I couldn't do it. I knew I couldn't do it. And so this one guy that I was close with and had been close to for a few years who was on my team and more senior than me i was like dude i i can't like here's the situation and he said well if you can't be there like i guess we can't have it that day which i was like i loved that he's like he's so arrogant i love him so much we're still good friends so i can say that um but you know looking back it's it's dc like, i mean it, yes exactly <laughs> and he's like he is such a dc guy and it was so classic him that he said that and I instantly felt better even though I knew he was full of shit you know um so if people are listening and they're trying to figure out how to support someone through a grief moment just say whatever's going to make them feel better even if it's a little bit of bs um and so we got we got lucky you know there were only a few days that we could do this thing once the snow hit and it happened the day before her anniversary and I was so happy that I got to be there and it was it was truly an amazing day in the White House. And then the next day was the exact opposite. And I had to be okay with that. And, and, but I think that's real. And so when I say badass, it isn't like kind of, I don't want to make sure it doesn't sound like I'm like, you were so vulnerable. Yay. To me, that just took a lot of self-leadership there, a lot of confidence and courage and clarity and in, in knowing yourself and and really not putting the job and everyone else above you too. Yeah. And I I think that's something that was powerful. So, and on this idea of success and work, we don't typically expect successful people to carry around emotions like grief. We just don't like, you just, you kind of, it's, it's not, it's not cool. So how has your idea of what it means to be a successful person changed since you've integrated grief into your experience and identity? It is all rooted in compassion and being honest, because the thing that I have learned, and I'm sure you would agree, is that when we do show up as our full selves, sharing our whole story, even if it's just pieces of your story, because it is, again, harder for some people than others, you are able to build much more genuine connections and relationships with others. And I think having like real relationships with the people that you work with can be really helpful when it comes to getting the work done too. So you're not only getting this new support in a place where you spend a ton of your time, but you are also now, you know, somewhat closer to the people who you share this office space with. 
And I think that makes working together so much easier. So I just, I feel like there are so many benefits to being honest about who you are and what you're dealing with. And, you know, I've even seen it in these last few months. Um, you know, my, my son is adopted and he arrived unexpectedly two weeks before my book was due. And that meant, yes. And I own my own business. I have my own consulting practice. And so that meant I didn't have a plan for maternity leave. So I was showing up to client calls, meetings with my editor, et cetera, on, you know, the four hours sleep or whatever that you're lucky to get those first few weeks of a baby's life. And I just would tell people the truth. And it led to a lot of really great mom advice and funny stories and, and tips and tricks and things that I have benefited from because I showed up as who I was in the moment. Um, so I think, I think it just makes life easier when we're able to be mm. honest about who we are in all aspects of our life. Success is not hiding big parts of our lives. I don't have the Success energy for that. Oh, it's exhausting. Isn't it exhausting? It's exhausting. And I just, I, I don't, yeah, I don't have the capacity for it. And that's not, that's not what I want to do with my energy. Well, and it's interesting you bring up capacity because grief has a way of kind of blowing out the parts of us that could just push on through. And we never recover from that, right? You can't go back to just numbing and living the zombie nope. life. And that's why it's this great clarifier. And you're like, I, I literally that's not going to happen. And it's disorienting. And at least here in America, the, with the way we push on through with work and life, how, how has your relationship with grief and loss evolved since you started to befriend it as a reflection of love? I am more accepting and I give myself more permission. This is why permission is the longest chapter in the book. You guys, um, I give myself more permission to do whatever I need to do to be okay. Oh, permission to do what I need to do to be okay. And that changes and you define that in your terms. Yeah. I define it on my terms and no two days it's are dynamic. the same for any of us. You know, we, we all, while there are things that you know, especially when it comes to the way that grief lands in the body and the brain that are universal for all of us, I think everyone's experience with grief is unique, which means everyone's sort of healing journey also has to be unique. So like what I need to be okay today is not the same as what you, Rebecca, need to be okay today, but we can both commit to giving ourselves permission to accessing whatever is going to help us really be okay. You know, is it a workout? Is it a walk with your dog? Is it a few minutes of meditation? Is it letting yourself cry in the shower before you start your day? Whatever it is, let yourself access it so that you really can show up fully for the other people in your life and for yourself when when like the good moments when when the joyful moments arise i love it and i think i'm just thinking going back to your chapter and asking and asking for an extension on a deadline yeah. Yeah. and ask asking for some more support if you can't do it all on your own um or changing the schedule altogether yes. and and not holding these these deadlines the rigidity um uh, that we've been we've breathed in, yep. like you talked about supremacy culture, you know, kill us from the inside out, exactly. but instead just live fully. So thank you. Do you have a moment for some quick fire questions oh, yeah. before we wrap oh, up? I'm excited. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> what are what are you reading right now? Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you asked. I am reading 
my friend Kate Spencer's um, romance novel called In a New York Minute. And as I already shared, I think New York City is the best city in the world. And there's so much in her writing about this, you know, adorable little love story that is also a love letter to New York. And it just brings Uh, me so much joy. You know, like I read a line and I'm like, oh my God, that's exactly how I feel. Oh my God, I know exactly where that is. Like, it just, yeah, I'm, I'm loving it. Okay, I got to check it out because I lived in New York for a beat. So I'm going to check it out. So right after my DC stand. Okay, what song are you playing on repeat right now? I feel like everything I've been listening to is on my son's playlist, which has (laughs) real music. Um, So one of the songs that I can actually remember the name of off the top of my head um, is uh, it's a Ben Harper cover of um, a Coldplay song, that Coldplay song, Fix You but it's a Ben Harper cover um, with this awesome like gospel choir. So I highly recommend. I'll be checking that (laughs) out. What is the best TV show or movie you've seen recently? We just finished the latest season of the Ozarks. And yeah, I was like, whoa, this is wild. This is wild. Also the mom in the show completely like took a turn this season. I won't reveal anything to anyone, but I was like, yikes. Um, we also have been watching on Netflix. I need to finish it. Um, the ultimatum, uh, marry or move on, or these couples who've been in relationships for like, you know, 18 months, two years, four years, whatever. One of them has served an ultimatum to the other and they go on the show to basically figure out if they're going to get married or if they're going to move on. And the twist in the show is when they show up, the couples actually initially get broken apart and repaired together so it is it is high drama it is hilarious as a sort of old married lady watching these 20 somethings navigate these conversations and figure out whether or not they should marry these people and in almost every instance i am like you don't need to get married at 23 you don't need to get married at 24 like just sit tight like if you're not ready you're not ready and it's okay um so that has been really entertaining Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> this reality TV. Oh, okay. What is your favorite 80s movie, or TV show, or piece of pop culture? Um, Anything Whitney Houston, Paul Abdul, or Janet Jackson from the 80s, like hands down a thousand. Yeah. Years. I mean, I was like a jazz dancer kid, you know, not very good, but had a lot of fun with it. So that is, yes, like Escapade was our first big jazz recital song you know so all of that is always fun awesome what is your mantra right now compassion like self-compassion and i think self-compassion is most important because when i can extend compassion to myself it makes it easier to extend it out to others in the world but everything right now is about compassion and love not exactly a mantra but compassion and love period like if, if i have those words in my mind It just makes everything else easier. So true. And who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human? My mom, you know, she was just a really kind, compassionate, loving, supportive person. You know, so many people loved her and she she didn't have a big life. You know, when I was a kid, she had a job and always made clear that it was a job and not a career. And, you know, she did have other career ambitions that she was just never able to realize, you know, first getting sick at 37. And, and I think back sometimes to her wake and the volume of people that showed up 
because of the impact that she had had on their lives without, you know, without being a CEO or, you know, writing a book or having a podcast, like all of these people sit in line for hours, you know, it was five hours and several hundred mourners when we lost her. Mm. And I just think about having that kind of impact without having the tools that we all have now that, you know, create impact and just how meaningful it can be to show up in the world, you know, pretty much every day as a kind, loving, compassionate human being like that. It makes a difference. And and I saw how it made a difference. Mm. And you are living her legacy. I'm trying. And she's shining up from above. <laughs> yeah. Marissa, this has been an honor Thank and you. I'd love to have you come back on yeah, the show sure. in the future because there's some things I'm like, oh, I want to go deeper on this. We don't we have could time. We talk for hours. Where can people find you and your Yes. Book? So you can find me on Instagram or really on any of the social media channels as Marissa Renee Lee. You can find my book pretty much anywhere books are sold. I'm very fortunate. It is in Target stores. It is on Amazon. It's in Barnes & Noble. Um, it's at a lot of independent bookstores, which I'm all about supporting. And um, it is actually already in a second printing. So I don't know when this is going to air, but right now it is back ordered on Amazon. Marissa, congratulations. A big freaking deal for an <laughs> author. Thank you. Congratulations on that. Well, thank you again. This has been truly a pleasure. And I know that this conversation is going to be a support to many people. So thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. This was so wonderful. We need to make time to grieve. And I'm really worried about us if we don't. Gosh, I'd love to see us stop judging ourselves or others for grieving. And I'd love to see more normalizing and welcoming of the grieving process. It's just as a simple sign of a life full of love and care and commitment. And this requires a capacity to sit with grief. And that's some important inner work. Sure, grief is exhausting. But the work that goes into managing it instead of working through it is even more taxing. And Marissa detailed for us at length the toll of not taking the time to really heal and move through grief and what that impact had on her well-being and her relationships. So I want to ask you, how do you respond when grief arrives in your life? And what were you taught about grief and how does that help or hurt how you lead yourself and others? And what has grief taught you over the last couple of years? <laughs> yes, grief is painful to feel. And it's also awkward and comfortable when navigating it with others too. But often I see people try to operationalize and develop a strategy around grief. But I'd love to see us do a better job just honoring grief with ritual with acknowledgement, and with our presence. I really believe we have an opportunity to shift how we do work, how we build community, and how we run businesses by reevaluating how we approach and acknowledge grief and support those who are grieving. And this is the work of an unburdened leader. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. And navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. 
Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights, but it's bold and brave work to stay the course when the future is unknown, when grief shows up, and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, sign up for the weekly Unburdened Leader email and find free Unburdened Leader resources along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.